In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Spectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I am joined today not by my normal co-host, Nathan, but by a very special co-host who you have heard from uh, once before. He joined for our conversation on ransomware, and we had such a good conversation, we had such a good time that decided to invite him, invite him back when Nathan went on vacation. So here with us today is Connor Haynes. Connor, welcome. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here, bringing in the uh, the scrubs off the bench to, to co-host for the day. <laughs> No, no way. Uh, yeah, I think we have got a great set of conversations ahead of us today, um, all very climate-focused. Um, we'll start off by talking about insurance in the climate, uh, insurance in, in the fossil fuel industry, and then we'll talk about um, an activist hedge fund making waves in, in uh, ExxonMobil. And then finally, we'll have a bit of a, a theoretical discussion about um, the role of climate uh, in our economy, and you know the potential for a climate catastrophe to be an economic catastrophe. Um, and as always, if you like the show and you want to support it, you can head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com/theperspectrum, and throw us a couple bucks. You'll get access to some exclusive Patreon content, and you'll help support the show. And so with that, I'll get started as I usually do with the COVID numbers. Um, so, so far in the world, 180 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 178 million people a week ago. So that's about 2 million new cases in a week, or about, uh, which is about 30% less than the increase from the week before. Um, 3.9 million people have died from COVID worldwide at this point, which is up from 3.84 million people last week. So about 60,000 new deaths this week, which is a much, much smaller increase um, than we've seen in previous weeks. Um, so far in the world, 36 doses of vaccine have been administered for every 100 people, which is up from 31 doses per 100 last week, uh, which is actually a much bigger increase than we've seen in recent weeks as well. Uh, we were averaging uh, an increase of about two doses per 100 for the first few months of the vaccine rollout. Then last week and the week before, it increased to three doses, and, and this was an increase of five doses per 100. Um, so that's, that's a pretty exciting thing. Um, in the U.S. at this point, 34.4 million people have uh, gotten COVID, which is up from 34.36 million last week, which is just a 0.2% increase in total cases or about 80,000 new cases this week, which is the smallest incre increase we've seen in a really long time. At this point, our daily new cases are down to 10 to 12,000 per day, which is as low as they've been since the last week of March in 2020. Um, so far, uh, 618,000 people have died from COVID in the U.S., which is up from 616,000 last week. So that's about 2,000 new deaths in a week or about 286 deaths per day, which still puts COVID as, on an annual basis as a top 10 killer in the U.S., but, uh, you know, it's not number one or, or it's not number two or number three anymore, um, which is a good sign. And at this point in the U.S., 
55% of the population has received at least one dose of the vaccine, which is up from 54% last week. Um, and at this point, 45% of the population is fully vaccinated, up from 44% last week. So again, another really frustrating week in U.S. vaccine rollout with just a 1% increase in population being uh, being vaccinated. So uh, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, I don't know why you're listening to this show. Just just go do it. Yeah, it's, it's, it might not really be the target audience. audience if you're, uh, yeah. you're listening to this show. I don't think you have a, But who knows? I mean, there could be people out there. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's um, it's kind of funny how like yesterday's like future project projections are now today's reality. I mean, like everybody said, like mm-hmm. oh, it won't be that long until vaccine supply far outstrips demand for it, and and here we are. Mm-hmm. Now people don't want it, and it seems like we're getting to that point where it's gonna be tough to change people's minds. I, yeah, um, I'm just I'm just upset that I didn't wait until there was a million dollar cash prize on the table to get my vaccine. <laughs> oh yeah, I've heard people <laughs> cars and sporting tickets yeah. televisions i mean there's, there's no end to the things um and apparently in it's hong like, kong you can win an apartment really? <laughs> and that's like one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world that's a pretty uh attractive exactly price. they're desperate yeah I, I i was reading that um i can't remember where but i just saw some headline that uh lotteries are psychologically pretty effective because people drastically overestimate their odds of winning and so they mm. think like, oh, the expected value, you know, like the odds of me winning something off this are pretty high. In, in reality, yeah, nobody yeah. wins lotteries. If, you know. Yeah, the odds must be pretty terrible when the expected value of like a $200 million pot is lower than the $2 cost yeah. of entry. <laughs> the odds must be pretty bad on that. That'd be a really strange way to uh, market way a lottery, lower, right? Yeah. Instead, of, instead of that headline figure, you imagine big billboards, you know, $2 ticket, expected payoff, $1. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People would still buy it. <laughs> they would. Absolutely. Um, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I don't know about you, but, like, I, I feel, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but um, I feel a good deal of apathy towards people who haven't been vaccinated there's like this real sense of um well i got the vaccine i'm okay i mean if if you don't want to get it you know like uh so much the worse for you um yeah but that might be like somewhat myopic self-centered it's certainly short-sighted in regards to people who for um for whatever reason cannot get the vaccine which you know is 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 a minority of people but they are like imagine if that's one of your loved ones or somebody you care about i mean that's like a really uh immediate and important factor and um and then of course i mean it's also somewhat limited to only look at the the u.s now and and to think about um the ways in which you would expect if any country is going to win the battle against COVID, it should be the richest country in the world that's a reasonable expectation um and and kind of like like the like a very low baseline I, I would I would want to say I mean like, <laughs> one that we have a baseline that we've been below literally since the beginning and now are voluntarily below yeah, yeah. I, I also wonder if there's a, a an element in which um, in which this like vaccine apathy that that I feel and, and kind of like um, not just apathy but uh, tiredness or like uh, exhaustion yeah. about hearing about COVID all the time makes it more difficult to prioritize the rest of the world. I mean, is it once my social communities mm. are back to normal, once I see the light at the end of the tunnel, when it's no longer, 
you're the number one killer in our country. Um, do I, it, it just, it becomes very distant. The fact that this really is a, still a very pressing, um, issue in, in, for the majority of the world. I mean, not just some of the world, like, like literally for the vast majority of the world's population. Um, yeah. I, I think I was, I think I was reading, I know I was reading this the article up, up next to me that, um, but I, I don't know where in the article it, it says this. It says that, um, in the U.S., okay, uh, I don't know what day this was from. This article was written in June, like a week ago. Uh, the U.S. death rate is, um, on Wednesday, so on one day, the U.S. had one person per million people in the country who died. Mm. Meanwhile, in, uh, in India, it was 2.7 million per million people, so close to three times higher than the U.S., but in Paraguay, it was 18 people per million, 18 high, times higher than in the U.S. Um, and I think elsewhere in this article, oh yeah, Peru's at nine per million, three times the rate of India, which we've heard a lot about India. We haven't heard a lot about Peru. Yeah. Um, I think somewhere in this article, well, probably it just the that, scale factor there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the sheer number of people in India. Um, although apparently something like eight of the 10 countries with the highest death rate now are in South America. Um, and if you take the aggregate population across South America, it's, it is quite high. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't know. I mean, like it's, it's so tough for it to like feel as immediate when you, when it's not impacting your life in the same mm. way. Um, yeah. And we talked, we talked in our, our last episode about the G7 and some of the mm -hmm. commitments on, on sharing vaccines and things like that. And just with like a little bit of basic math, we like broke down the commitments to, being really significantly insufficient in order to actually get to like a worldwide uh, herd immunity for this disease. So like, again, really good top line, you know, really good big numbers that you can put in headlines, but not sufficient to actually get the world into the right place. Um, and, you know. Yeah, we just suck at thinking at scale, right? I mean, things just become abstract. And well, if yeah. you tell me, you know, <laughs> we're giving out a hundred million doses of the vaccine or a billion doses, I mean, like it sounds phenomenal, right? Like, it's, like that's yeah. that's a lot. Um, but but the world's population is whatever seven and a half billion, and 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 computing that math or like realizing how many different individuals there are is 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 very difficult. Um, and yet, uh, you know, by some other token, I mean, like, rarely in our lives probably have we had an opportunity to do so much good with, like, relatively so little effort. I mean, this isn't, like, so, yeah. like, the, like we already did, in some sense, the hard part. We developed the vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. Now we just have to distribute yeah. it. Now we just have to have... And we have little, excess of the vaccine, yeah. Yeah, to do this, to do good. I mean, like, genuinely do good, right? I mean, like, like it saves people's lives. What could be more yeah. meaningful? And the cell phone signal is way better. <laughs> what could be better than that? <laughs> Literally, what could be more valuable than this? Yeah, and it's hard. Yeah, to, no, it's definitely yeah. like a, a, a personal. I mean, like as much as anything, I feel like it's just like a personal challenge to myself to like be more mindful of the ways in which like just because my life Me is too. getting back to normal doesn't mean that it's that way for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear people. I hear my peers all the time talk about how COVID's over. Talk about how, and and partially it's distracting because it's fucking summertime. Like, <laughs> you know, like you just there the, not only have the shackles come off largely in the U.S. for the, like the first time in, in a year or more, but also it's like the best time of the year to be distracted from things. Mm. It's just 
it's uh yeah it is a personal struggle absolutely so now that we've thoroughly been demoralized by the discussion of uh, COVID and apathy towards what vaccine could be better and, and than the, the death and destruction of society exactly <laughs> we're gonna have a nice uplifting first segment uh which is not only about yeah the doom of of the earth but also about insurance two people's you know everybody's favorite two things uh, <laughs> Um, and so for this uh, first segment, we have a special guest. Um, Hannah, welcome to the show. You want to you wanna introduce yourself? Hey, yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Hannah Sago. Um, I'm a climate campaigner with Public Citizen, and I'm working on, as you said, the intersection of insurance and climate change or insurance and fossil fuels. So excited to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you. Um, this, so one of the things we really like to do on the show is take subjects that are really crucially important that either people don't think about or they wouldn't be very interested in and try to convince them why it's really <laughs> critically important that they find interest in them. Yeah. Um, and I think this is like, actually, this is actually like a, uh, it's a misnomer to think this, this might not be an interesting subject because, uh, because of like its involvement with insurance. As I was learning about this for this segment, I was like, I was floored by not only the the problem itself, but the hypocrisy baked into it. Yeah, um, that I found that so interesting. Absolutely. So yeah. So where do you want to where do you want to get started? Yeah, I mean, I can just give an overview for folks who don't know why we would talk about insurance and, and climate change in the same space. Um, so yeah, I'm part of the Insure Our Future Coalition, which is broadly a campaign targeting different insurance companies and convincing them to stop insuring fossil fuel projects and companies and also divest their assets from fossil fuel projects and companies. And so why, um, just like insurance companies insure your home and your car, they're also insuring oil pipelines, coal mines, power plants, and all of these you know, big oil and fossil fuel infrastructure that is directly contributing to climate change. Without insurance, uh, you can't build a project, you can't finance a project, and it's not operable either. So it's just too risky um, for any of these projects to continue. Um, and then the other piece of it is that insurance um, companies are massive asset managers. So they take the money that they collect from your premiums, very similar to a bank's model, right? The money that they collect from your premiums for auto insurance and home insurance, they turn around and invest it. And a big part of that portfolio is they invest it into fossil fuels. Um, and so those are kind of the two key areas that we're trying to convince insurance companies to change on. And like you were mentioning, um, there's an inherent hook there in the hypocrisy of why insurance companies um, who are supposed to be, you know, protecting our homes from damages that are very at risk from natural disasters that are only going to increase in intensity and frequency from climate change, and then turning around and also supporting the very industry that is making the crisis worse. Um, and we've already seen in areas like California that are really exposed to wildfire risk, a lot of insurance companies are already pulling out and refusing to insure these homes against wildfire damages to the point where the state of mm. California had to put a moratorium on any insurance companies withdrawing um, that I think they actually just removed. So now insurance companies are going to flee even more from those areas as they are contributing simultaneously um, to the same problems. <laughs> that was wow. a lot. So, um. uh, so but, yeah, but I didn't make anything clear. Yeah. No, that is, so I'm pausing not because it wasn't clear, but because like 
this is mind blowing to me. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I mean, insurance companies are, as you know, some of the like oldest institute, like financial institutions, some of the longest thinking, most forward thinking mm -hmm. financial institutions, the idea that they would be like directly yeah. contributing to a problem, right? which we know is globally untenable, mm -hmm. you know, like just, just really blows my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, insurance companies are supposed to be like the risk experts. They're supposed to manage risk for our society. And yet they're completely blind to this risk that is our existential, like greatest existential threat. Um, and it mm. seems like, yeah, how can a company be so short-sighted? Um, and I think a lot of it is just the profit model, right? You, their plan mm. is to just raise premiums and exit from places that are too risky and continue profiting in the short term off of fossil fuels. Um, but I mean, I guess I should mention that there's a lot of evidence that it's actually not profitable for them to still be in fossil fuels. So they can't even hmm. say that. There's a lot of reports out there. I think Society General said that exiting from coal for insurers can increase their valuations. You know, it will decrease their risk of being um, insuring and investing in stranded assets. So there's definitely a financial case. Um, yeah. I, I thought, so do we... Oh, sorry. I was going to editorialize. Maybe not editorialize. I'm going to throw statistics into the mix. I just thought this was fascinating from a Harvard Business Review article uh, talking about large losses that insurance companies face. And so, so they're looking at mm. um, the large losses defined as losses of over $100 million from a single catastrophe or a single insurable event. Mm. Um, over the time frame that they looked at, there were insurance companies had faced $60 billion in losses from events related to fossil fuel companies. And only, and I, I had to do a double take at this number, only 30 million from other companies. Um, That's which, remarkable. Which I think tells me like two things. Like one, like there must be like just an absolutely insane amount of money in fossil fuels in general for there to be that much insurable risk. Yeah, I mean, like some, it just speaks yeah. to the size of fossil fuel industry. Um, but it also speaks, I think, to the importance and the role that insurance must play in that industry. When, when you talk about things at this scale, it's very difficult for companies to self-insure. They're, they're not necessarily big enough. If, you, if you're out there with, you know, a, a you know, quote-unquote, like, startup fracking project, like, <laughs> you, you can't, so you're probably not big Just enough. Just me and a couple of you know, college buddies going out yeah. there, digging up shale. Shooting <laughs> some high-pressured water into the ground and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and seeing what happens. A, buying a power washer and a pickaxe. Yeah, just normal startup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, interesting, interesting. So, so, so then it seems like, so two things that I want to make sure to touch on here then one, how critical insurance is to this industry. And, and two, I want to like, I'm curious if we, if there, if you know of any like actually good reason why these companies or reason that could, that might make sense why these companies are actually still in this business. Like, is it just top line revenue? Is it just that these comp that Exxon is so huge or that they're invested in Exxon from an asset perspective. And so like insuring Exxon, Exxon or, or all these other fossil fuel companies health is like beneficial to them in that way. It seems weird that they would double down on a, on a, on a, on a um, you know, losing strategy like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm pondering that all the time because it doesn't make sense to me either. Why they're still, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I will say like, 
from a campaign perspective, I think a lot of mm. big corporations are averse to when, you know, activists try and tell them what to do with their businesses and, and make a moral argument mm. for it. So even though, you know, a company like AIG, which is who the company I'm campaigning on, coal is only 1% of their premiums, right? It's not a core part of their business. And yet they refuse to make a single coal policy when you know droves of other insurance uh, companies have made policies around coal. It's, it's sort of like a baseline. This is clearly the dirtiest fossil fuel. This is kind of the minimum bar that any company can do, and AIG just doesn't want to. Um, and so, you know, what they'll say to us is that, well, we're loyal. We're loyal to our clients, and so they have a relationship with their client. And I think a, what a lot of people say in response to like the divestment movement, and also what we're trying to do with insurance, is that. Um, if we stick with our clients, we can help them transition as opposed to abandoning them, which, yeah, <laughs> coal companies can transition whether you're insuring them or not. And actually stopping to or, yeah, ending your coverage of a coal mine will probably help them transition a lot faster. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> a kick in the butt. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm always asking myself why they're still doing this. But, yeah, those are some of the talking points that I think we hear a lot. Uh, that's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny that they should take that perspective because like the even the commitments that I was reading about from some other insurance companies, like don't seem that ambitious or risky for those companies. It's like, you know, in the next, you know, 10 or 20 years, we'll get out of this industry that we think is going to be dead in that time frame anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's it, I can't imagine what AIG would have against committing to a long term transition plan. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think so there are like, I guess, to differentiate a little bit in, in what we're asking of these insurers, there are, I think, two things that we're really pushing for in a more immediate term. And that's stop insuring coal and stop insuring fossil fuel expansion. So that's any new investments or any new construction of fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, just seeing like what 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 is the hemorrhaging we need to stop? in order to avoid catastrophic yeah. global warming. Um, and the scientific community or climate community has kind of settled on these are two things that are really urgent. Um, and then like looking at oil and gas, I think there's a lot less momentum um, in, in insurers pulling out of oil and gas. There's only one company currently that has a broad policy or plan to phase out oil and gas insurance. Um, I think tar sands oil is, is one of the sectors within that that has a little bit more traction, um, Arctic drilling as well. But so usually with oil and gas, we're saying, we just want you to phase it out, like just commit to phasing it out. Um, and I think part of that with, with phasing out is actually getting to zero because I think a lot of you know, banks, asset managers talk about net zero. Um, yeah. And really what yeah. net zero is in a lot of cases is just, we can continue contributing to this problem. We can continue emitting directly or contributing to you know, big polluters as long as we're offsetting it. Um, and there's a lot of problems with offsets, you know, maybe they're just like paying money for a forest that like already exists or, or things that like aren't actually contributing um, additionally to, you know, pulling carbon out of the ground. Um, it's a distraction. Yeah, there's a lot that we could go into about why net zero is a, a big fallacy, but. I, I wanted to ask about yeah. um, an idea that like seems reasonable to me. Um, Perhaps it's unusual, but it would seem reasonable that given the um, given the harm that these fossil fuel projects do to the climate and ultimately to, to society and to people, um, it would perhaps seem reasonable to suggest that publicly owned companies have 
um, I guess kind of like an ethical responsibility, but ultimately perhaps just like what would be reasonable to be like a legislative responsibility to um, mm. disclose what fossil fuel projects they insure and to what extent. Um, and I'm curious what you think about that idea. So I agree that, you know, insurance companies should be disclosing what exposure they have to fossil fuels and, and specifically, you know, how much they're insuring fossil fuels and their, and also how much they're invested um, in fossil fuels as like, yeah, publicly traded companies or just companies with maybe a moral obligation to society or moral obligation in that they're contributing to the problem. Um, and unsurprisingly, <laughs> it's really difficult to get even disclosure. Um, we're actually in the AIG campaign currently waiting for them to put out a sustainability report. Um, and there's all of these voluntary frameworks for reporting, you know, your progress on sustainability. And really conspicuously within insurance, they say, you know, disclose about your investments to a pretty detailed level, actually, like subsector mm -hmm. levels. So you can pull out, you know, here's all of their pipeline investments and here's all of their coal mining investments. But they don't ask or require anything of the insurance companies in terms of disclosing their underwriting, um, which seems like a massive gaping hole in, in any standard for um, insurance. And so, yeah, there's um, a lot of people within my coalition who are pushing for uh, financial regulators to require insurance companies to disclose, um, you know, how much they're exposed to climate change risk um, and how much they're contributing to it as well. And unsurprisingly, there's a lot of industry pushback. Um, and just because of, you know, how much industries can have a say in our legislative process, there hasn't been a lot of traction in that. Actually, um, just I think last week, there was a really groundbreaking bill that passed in Connecticut. Um, and part of that is why is because um, a lot of insurance regulation is done at the state level. Um, and so Connecticut is sort of like a hub for insurance. Um, and some of my uh, coworkers were collaborating with a Senator Matt Lesser to pass a really sweeping insurance bill that would require disclosures, among other things, and also require regulators to incorporate climate risk in their supervision and regulation of insurers. Um, and so the final bill that passed didn't include anything about disclosures, but it did include that the regulators have to incorporate climate change risk into how um, they're regulating and supervising insurers and also incorporate emissions targets which is the first time hmm. like any law has required this of insurers in the world. See, see, that's another thing that like, like gets me too. like, I'm, I'm really surprised to your point that the financial exposure from the underwriting side is not more highly regulated, especially for a company like AIG, which lost like billions of dollars during the financial crisis, underwriting crappy, crappy yeah, investment. Like, that's a great point. Like, they're not the good How guys. How is it not right? possible? <laughs> We've yeah. the They've yeah. shown they're capable of making bad decisions at scale. Yeah. Yeah. At scale and on the underwriting side, mm. not just taking the premiums and, and you know, yeah, counterbalancing their risk by, by investing those. Like they have, they have shown that we have, we cannot trust them from an underwriting perspective. And the problem with an, with, with telling an insurance company that they can fuck up and you will bail them out. They take that, that message. They to heart. price that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what insurance companies do. You have mitigated their risk. So one thing that mm -hmm. as I was reading through the articles on, on the Citizen Project site was that 
what that I was that I was blown away by was that like insurance companies are on to some degree expecting that taxpayers will foot the bill yeah. for the harms that they are contributing to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's that kind of, you know, flagrant disregard um, for the public's money and also, you know, just feeling like they can run away and, and take on all of this risk without being concerned about the project or the consequences because they know the government will bail them out. You know, just having that mentality, I think, is something we're really trying to call out. And also, you know, a big messaging point on regulation. So much of this financial regulation, you know, agencies and infrastructure was created as a direct response to 2008. And, exactly. you know, this is arguably the next big bubble or the next big risk to another financial crisis globally. And so, what are these regulators doing if they're not trying to mitigate this risk, both the risk, you know, to these financial institutions themselves, but also reining in how they are fueling the risk and making it worse in a lot of ways. So, yeah. 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 That's really interesting. So is that, is that part of the divest, divestment movement as well? Or is that more on like the underwriting campaign side? Are people pushing for insurance companies to uh, withdraw like investments from fossil fuel and, and like, what's, I guess the motivation there? Yeah, so it's also, yeah, it's within sort of like the broader divestment movement. And so kind of to, to situate where the insurance piece comes in, um, there's this broad Stop the Money Pipeline Coalition. And that is a coalition of organizations that are targeting all financial institutions to divest from fossil fuels. So that's you know, big banks, asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, um, you know, big pension funds. Uh, universities, which have big endowments, um, and then insurance companies. And I think what's unique about insurance companies is that they are major asset managers, and and they do hold AIG, for example, um, has held $26.8 billion in fossil fuels. That was in 2017. That's unfortunately the most recent data that we have, just because they don't want to disclose this information. Um, So it's really like pulling to the nail to get that kind of information. But yeah, just as an example... AIG and insurance companies broadly do fit into this um, divestment conversation. And then like they have the other interesting piece, which is a really unique pressure point, which is the actual underwriting of these projects. Um, And so in terms of like the strategy of divestment, I think a lot of it is pushing the public to see that these companies have lost their social license if they're not going to address um, you know, investing in, into these projects and companies enabling fossil fuel expansion um, and just, you know, broadly by investing in these companies, they are saying this, this is something that we accept as a society, right? Like there's a moral argument that you can make around what you invest in um, that I think a lot of people, yeah. you know, maybe would overlook or, or ignore. But I think, yeah, it sends powerful signals if big mm. asset managers, big banks say we are no longer going to touch, like none of our assets are going to be um, in these industries. Um, yeah. Interesting. I, I love, I mean, this probably sounds so basic to you working in this space all the time, but I love this angle on the <laughs> argument where um, to get an oil company to stop doing oil, you know, immediately or quickly is to cripple their business in, in some kind of pragmatic sense. Like, sure, we want oil companies to expand into renewables or whatever, but in a core sense, like the foundation of their business is oil. Um, but the foundation of an asset manager's business, the foundation of a bank, the foundation of an insurance company is not fossil fuels. If these companies divest from the fossil fuel space, it's going to, it has to shrink the size of the fossil fuel industry. It has massive positive influences on the world. And these companies can survive it. They can continue to 
make money. I, I, I think it was something, you know, like, I, I don't know what numbers I was reading, but like Chase and, you know, maybe lends or invests 7% of, of their overall money into things that are somewhat related to fossil fuels. And they are by far the largest investor in the, the fossil fuel industry to the, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and, and if they were to get out of it, I mean, that puts huge pressure on fossil fuel companies and it doesn't cripple Chase. Yeah. And it doesn't cripple AIG. You mm-hmm. said AIG's uh, the amount of their portfolio allocated to, to coal is is you know one percent of their premiums, um, or I guess that's on the div- or the underwriting side. But still, one percent of their premiums is not um, a massive amount of, of their company. They have, like by putting pressure on these what appear to be almost like secondary influences to climate change on banks, on asset managers, on insurers. Um, it's almost like targeting the most promising space because these are the people who can, given enough pressure, make positive changes and also, though, could actually make the changes because it's not going to, like, within our capitalist system, like, Mm -hmm. cripple their business. Yeah, and I will say it's also in their best interest, right? Because, like, as the entire world transitions away from fossil fuels and into renewables, those assets are going to be rapidly devalued. And if these companies are overexposed to the fossil fuel industry, then that could be a huge problem for their portfolios, right? So, like, there is a financial case for it's not only, you know, a moral thing that they should do in order to help this transition, but it's protecting themselves against transition risk at the same time. Um, And I will say, kind of to your point of, like, these are not, you know, the big oil, it's not their core business. These are companies that are adjacent to that and enabling it in a lot of ways. I think that is both an opportunity, like you said, and also a challenge of the campaigns, right? Because it, it's, you know, removed enough that it's sometimes hard for people to understand, well, why are you campaigning on Chase about climate change? You know, they're a bank, right? And so it's, it's a, and with insurance companies as well, Um, It's hard to make that case because a lot of people don't know, one, that insurance companies are big asset managers and have a lot of investments, and two, wouldn't necessarily think of insurance companies as providing the same service that they do to your home and car um, to big pipelines and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, that that inherent tension between like a nuanced, targeted, effective, like policy strategy and the tension between that and being able to message something really complex to the public to garner public support is like the big puzzlement of my life. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm so, yeah. I have no idea how one would even go about approaching resolving that tension. Yeah. Because like, ultimately, like, it seems like you just need to, like, you need to figure out a way to do it without trying to get Joe Schmo on board, you know, (laughs) like, but the, but the cool thing about this strategy, if you can get it to work is that it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it relies on ongoing, um, like it doesn't seem like it relies on like a lot of like ongoing public pressure as much as it relies on like pulling the rug out from under fossil fuel companies from an insurance perspective. And like it will actively actually stop them from starting new, new projects like there's just no way for them to get around it yeah yeah absolutely and there's some really exciting examples i can give of that actually happening so there is this um coal mine in australia owned by a company called the adani group um carmichael coal mine it's called that's under construction and there was a massive campaign that on the insurance companies as well as you know any company involved or, or that has a relationship with adani group to just rule out 
and, and say, we're not going to touch any part of this company. We're not going to do any business with this company um, over several years. And as a result of that campaign and that pressure, I think something like 36 insurance companies have said, we won't insure any part of um, the Carmarco coal mine, you know, both the Adani group directly and also its contractors um, and just any part of that project to the point where um, coal is, this is kind of an aside, but coal is kind of, is really struggling in Australia right now. Um, and so there was a parliamentary inquiry um, into why coal is struggling so much in Australia. Um, and one of the coal mines contractors admitted that they couldn't find any insurance to continue work hmm. on rail lines for the project. Um, and so, you know, that puts immediate doubt on the whole project because if they can't transport the coal, then you know, what are they going to do with it? Um, yeah. And there's another example, um, which is more ongoing, um, interesting as well, uh, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is a tar sands pipeline mm. um, that runs from the Alberta tar sands um, in Canada to the coast of British Columbia. And this project um, was actually bought by the Canadian government a couple of years back. Mm. Um, which is a whole other hypocrisy with Canada's, you know, climate yeah. targets that we could get into, but owned by the Canadian government. <laughs> and uh, so that means they had to publicly disclose who insures the project. And so a year ago, campaigners found out who was insuring the project and launched a big campaign calling on them to drop the project. And mm. three of the companies that were insuring it publicly said, yeah, we're cutting ties with this project. Um, and that led to the company Trans Mountain filing with the Canadian government to keep the names of its insurers secret. Um, mm. They said, you know, this is causing, they actually said in their filing, like activist pressure is causing this risk of material loss that we can't find insurance and it's getting more expensive and, you know, owned by the Canadian government, they applied to the Canadian government and surprise, the Canadian government granted their request for secrecy. Um, mm. But, you know, we are seeing that this is definitely scaring uh, fossil fuel companies and, it, and it's definitely having an impact on them as well. So that's exciting. I, I got to say, as a, that as, is a, super as a Canadian citizen, <laughs> I, it's tough not to get, like, in a sense, it's encouraging, right? Like, the encouraging thing is, is kind of the, the, the proof of this model where targeting the dependencies of the fossil fuel industry. If you can cut out what they're dependent on, then you can cut out the fossil fuels. I really like those examples of success. As a Canadian citizen, on the other hand, it's really tough not to get a little bit fired up about the fact that the Canadian government owns the company that then petitions the Canadian government to be an impartial judge in courts to decide that we should be able to keep our insurer secret. I mean, it's... I. It, yeah, meanwhile, Canada says it like the G7, you're like, oh, yeah, net zero by 2050. Like, I don't know. I mean, like, it's just like, <laughs> it's... Money, please. <laughs> yeah. I... Yeah. yeah, there's also a massive, like, indigenous rights issue, especially with Trans Mountain Pipeline, but also with the coal mine. Um, and I think, you know, it's a problem even when a company is violating indigenous land rights, you know, building a project through indigenous lands without consent. And it seems even more egregious when it's a literal government doing it. And that government, you know, is tasked with upholding these indigenous rights um, as human rights. So, yeah, I guess the backdrop back of, of Canada's really um, dismal record on upholding indigenous rights and, mm -hmm. and then protecting indigenous communities. Absolutely. Do you, uh, do you want to give a call out, uh, a shout out to like where people can go to get involved with the campaign? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think the easiest way, the website to give on a podcast is insureourfuture.us. 
that's the website for the Insure Our Future U.S. campaign. So there's a lot of information there on, on what are the targets in the U.S. and um, broadly how you can get involved. Um, I guess I will say, just as like one last point, um, something that's kind of interesting is that, you know, over the past couple of years, more and more insurance companies have been implementing policies to end and restrict their insurance and fossil fuels. And a lot of the companies, almost all of the companies with the best policies, the most comprehensive, um, the strongest policies are in Europe or in Australia and other countries. Um, and almost all, like a ton of the laggards in this space are in the U.S., um, you know, I think it's something like four U.S. companies have zero restrictions on fossil fuel underwriting, um, and then a couple more have implemented sort of baseline coal policies. Like, what is the minimum policy we can put out there that just says coal, but in practice has so many loopholes and is so weak that it, it do really doesn't do that much? Um, and so, yeah, there's a huge divide in terms of the U.S. insurers are lagging in the space and, and just really haven't done enough, which is sad, unsurprising. Yeah. Sad and unsurprising. <laughs> well, I'm inspired at how much progress this campaign and campaigns like it have made. Yeah, if you want to get involved, insureourfuture.us, or you can also check out citizen.org slash insureourfuture. Yep. And uh, get involved in the, in the fight and the movement, and hopefully we can do some good in the world. Yeah. Okay, so for our second segment tonight, um, we are staying on the theme of climate change and even more on topic, climate activism. Um, and this strategy focuses on a slightly different approach, which is tackling um, the fight uh, to you know, get companies to adequately address climate change from the inside. Um, and not in like the go work for a fossil fuel company and make millions of dollars while you make them billions of dollars and then you can slowly convince people to change their minds from the inside. No, much, much more short-term and activist than that. <laughs> um, so we're talking about um, actually today an activist hedge fund. And so we'll talk a little bit about like what hedge funds are and how they can be activists. But Suffice so to say for right now that, you know, you probably think of when you think of a hedge fund, you probably think of like the guys who were like screwed over by the whole GameStop thing and then cried foul and got, you know, Robin Hood to shut down trading. Or maybe you think of like the bad guys that like come in and eke out all the profit of an organization and leave it like a crippled mass when they, they eventually sell it or whatever. Um, but really a hedge fund is like fundamentally um, a an investment vehicle or an investment organization that pools money from a number of individual investors and then develops a, an active strategy for driving returns on that investment. Um, a lot of times they're kind of industry focused, um, but they can have a lot of different active uh, or strategies with different levels of, of interaction. Um, some of them, as like I mentioned, you know, focus on like actually going in and changing how businesses are run. Um, other strategies are as hands-off as like different types of derivative trading. Um, and so like there's a lot of different forms that hedge fund can take. Um, but in this particular form, uh, we're talking about a hedge fund called Engine Number One. And it's kind of taking a very unique approach uh, to driving value for its investors. So Engine Number One is a hedge fund as 
Michael said, that means fundamentally it's pooling investors' money with some desire for return on those investments and a strategy for those investments. Um, but engine number one is unique because their motive is not purely a profit motive. Or if it is a profit motive, it's a, a, a kind of, to use a cliche, like a long-term greedy perspective. They, <laughs> they, they think that they're willing to look and, you know, frankly, maybe it's not that admirable if you had hundreds of millions of dollars sitting around and you knew that your children's children's children would be rich. Maybe you, too, would be willing to look and think, I wonder how my wealth will be doing a couple hundred years from now. Um, but that cynicism aside, I'm, I'm not sure what their investor base is, but their their objective is to invest in companies and to strategically promote conversations around increasing sustainability climate awareness um, and responsible governorship of, of the organizations and the companies that they invest in. And in, in the global scale, engine number one is a tiny hedge fund, but mm-hmm. that has, uh, has risen to prominence recently and has gotten a lot of publicity for a kind of, um, I've heard it called a, a soft coup that they staged at Exxon. Um, so Exxon is, is I, uh, I believe, the world's largest fossil fuel company. Um, and, and engine number one owns a very, very small percent of Exxon. They own, they own like 0.2%. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the way that our, our, our publicly traded companies work is that publicly traded companies have shareholders who elect a board of directors who appoints a CEO, a chief executive, and who oversee the operations of, of a company. In a sense, it's a, like a series of checks and balances. The, uh, the board is, is checks and balances for, for how the company, or is a check on, on how the company has actually operated. It's a check on the CEO and, and the power of the executives. Um, and this check is, is appointed by the shareholders. And so what Engine One's idea was is that uh, we'll become shareholders in Exxon and we want to use our shareholder standing to be a voice for change inside of Exxon, in particular a voice for Exxon to move away from fossil fuels, to invest in renewables, to reduce their carbon emissions, etc. And so when, uh, when Exxon had their, their shareholder uh, voting on who to appoint to the board, uh, engine number one decided to become vocal about the process. And, and typically, the process of electing the board of directors is, um, is largely a rubber stamp process. I, I, yeah. I, uh, in, in fact, in the entire, uh, I think I, I read since, uh, I think I read in the entire history of Exxon, uh, of being a publicly traded company, uh, the the candidates that Exxon had suggested to be appointed to the board had never failed to be appointed, <laughs> um, and in in this case, um, engine number one through their advocacy uh, was actually able to convince enough of other shareholders of of Exxon to vote um, against the candidates suggested by Exxon and in favor of 
these activist uh, board appointments, which are somewhat careful with the word activist in this context. These are people who are, mm-hmm. are interested in, in, um, in changing the trajectory of Exxon from the inside. These are not necessarily the types of people you would see uh, protesting outside of the street corners of Exxon. I mean, in, in fact, some of these, these, these candidates uh, that, that were appointed that, that engine of one had a role in it. Of um of of appointing of getting appointed do have like a history of working for oil companies and and they've you know perhaps reformed their ways if you want to call it that or whatever <laughs> they they see a, a new path forward in the future versus versus uh how yeah. how companies operate in the past but you know we should be careful with what we really call activists in this context mm-hmm. um or maybe we shouldn't be careful but we should specify that there's just lots of different types of activism and and that like this should be a large umbrella and we should embrace. Uh, all the different ways that we can promote positive change in the world. To be fair, climate change activists that uh, like are inside of the fossil fuel industry are probably pretty outside of the umbrella (laughs) that you might normally like typically refer to as activists yeah uh, well it's really interesting so uh when they first like when all these news stories came out about like engine number one successful campaign to to win board seats it was that they had taken over two of the 12 board seats at exxon Mm -hmm. this is a big deal right this is the first time in history that like like they directly went up against the ceo of exxon who said elect these candidates and they said no we're your shareholders we are the people who actually yeah. own this company, and we think that's a bad idea. And they they collectively got over fifty percent of shareholders to vote with them, like against the candidates yeah. that Exxon wanted to appoint. And this was really remarkable. Um, yeah, and especially uh, given like such a small share that they held themselves. You know the oh yeah the zero point the zero two percent stake in a two hundred fifty billion dollar company. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and then they got up to over fifty percent, which means that their case won had to be really convincing. And two, it had to be a financial one Mm. because ultimately you're not going to get Vanguard and BlackRock and the other asset managers to leverage their voting power because these like large funds are typically they, they own a large portions of these companies because they represent, you know, they, they, um, they, uh, you know, own lots of shares of these companies in order to, you know, uh, in order to make their funds, um, you know, they, and so they represent a lot of voting power, but in order to leverage that voting power, you have to rally them. And fundamentally like, like the, the push for climate reform has to be from the financial side in like, it has to be at least from the financial side, from the, from the side of long-term value. Yeah, right. I mean, th- these issues are complicated, but there's a sense in which uh, BlackRock has, uh, or at least we, we tend to perceive, you know, we could maybe challenge this belief, but we would generally perceive that BlackRock has uh, some sort of duty to its investors to um, vote in a way that will protect the assets that they're managing and that are not going yeah. to be you know, to immediately shut down Exxon and like have $250 billion of market cap disappear overnight would, Mm -hmm. would, um, would, would, would conventionally be viewed as, as as a irresponsible, uh, role for BlackRock to play. So there there has to be a, uh, a path forward of, of kind of sustainable change and and profitable change, perhaps long-term greedy change in order for this type of Mm -hmm. thing to work. Um, but anyway, so there's these two board members that were elected and then like couple weeks later Exxon came back so actually we finished counting it's actually three board members that were elected and this third one that was much closer was a much more contentious more activist Mm -hmm. like more 
conventionally like under you know more likely to be considered under the umbrella of <laughs> traditional activism um candidate um but this this is you know this is a really uh like wild success story to have uh three out of 12 board members at a literal you know a literal fossil fuel company this is this is not like, like there's no illusions this is exxon like um, yeah to have three of the 12 board members be openly outspoken about the fact that climate risk is real, it's going to affect Exxon's business, and that Exxon needs to be doing more to innovate for the future instead of trying to, uh, you know, take, like, the cable TV provider route of just, like, milking what profits we can before we die. Um, I think it's, it's exciting. It, it probably happened because Exxon's not been doing well recently. They lost $22 yep. billion dollars last year. They pay a dividend every year. One of the reasons people love to invest in Exxon is because they pay a dividend. It's an established company. What's a dividend is when that company says, we're going to take part of our profits and instead of investing it back into our business, we're just going to give it out to our shareholders. Here's your bit of the pie. People love that. Why wouldn't you love that? Um, and they've increased that <laughs> dividend almost every year. And last year they didn't increase it. There's rumors of them cutting the dividend. This is this is, this is is a big news and it's big for... Um, it's 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 big because there's a lot of energy in like the divestment space. There's energy in this this like let's take on climate change by stopping fossil fuels, which is like great. And I think probably the dominant approach that is likely to be successful. Um, yeah. But the problem's big, and a both end approach is is very welcome. And when you see <laughs> financial insiders and you see people who are actively engaged in financial markets and investing, saying, you know what, like even from our perspective, we can tell that that these threats are real, they're immediate, and we need to do something about it. Um, I think it's really exciting, and, and, and I think it's notable. I mean, like, it, it's, it, 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 time will tell how effective it is, and time will tell what the future yeah. looks like at, you know, Exxon and Shell and these other massive fossil fuel companies. Um, but I think it's a really exciting movement in which we've seen a, a kind of... a. a, a a movement to use voice from the inside of these companies to, to enact change. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Like I found this very interesting as, as um, you know, I think we've talked about before, like to me, there's something very appealing about taking a system and uh, abiding by kind of the rules of that system, configuring it to get to an outcome that you want. Like, like, um, and Ultimately, like, I think getting to a place where, like, renewable energy is the answer, not only because it's the long-term answer, but also because it's, like, the short-term best answer to, like, you know, making money today. And, like, that could be from, you know, from Hannah's campaign side by making it really, really freaking expensive, if not impossible, to you know, actually run a fossil fuel company, right? Just make the financial disincentive of running the company way too high. But it can also be to like steer the, like recognize that the future requires investment in new green technologies and like convince over 50% of the people of like, of like shareholders to, um, uh, that, 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 value is real and salient and all that stuff so like i i think it's like a really exciting thing i'm cu very curious to see what kind of changes they'll push for what kind of changes they'll actually be able to enact because you know like um 
uh, engine number one itself seems, you know, relatively progressive, like right, like, you know, especially for a hedge fund, like right on the homepage of their website, they describe their hedge fund as quote, an investment firm purpose built to create long-term value by harnessing the power of capitalism. We believe a company's performance is greatly enhanced by the investment investments it makes in workers, communities, and the environment. We believe that our over t- that over time the interests of Main Street and Wall Street align, and we can engage as active owners to create value by focusing on this alignment. So, like that's a pretty progressive and very like investment hedge fundy uh, combination that I find really exciting especially because once you stamp this mold, I'm sure there will be copycats. Mm. And that that's that seems pretty cool too. Yeah, and also I kind of like, I'm very intrigued and, and, and kind of like a, at first glance <laughs> like this idea of if I'm an owner of a company, I should not be obligated to think that like next quarter's profits or a year from now's profits are what I care about. There's no like, like yeah. if I own like part of like, like ownership extends beyond, I mean, if I own a company, I mean, this is like, you know, this is kind of like the, the thing that, you know, it, it seems like rich people are allowed to do all the time. It's like they get to do whatever they want and they're not constrained by like, you know, by things. It's like if I if I own this, like I have the prerogative to push for things, to, to want like mm-hmm. the company that I'm invested in, not just to uh, make money hand over fist, but to do it in a way that's sustainable, to, to yeah. prioritize things beyond um, beyond profits at any cost. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, so, so this is like where I think it gets really interesting is, is engine number one is launching an ETF. Um, mm. and, and, and to me, this is like more exciting in a lot of ways than like some activist hedge fund, like getting some seats on a board. Um, because you know, a bunch of like, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, this is like projected like a bunch of like rich tech bros sitting around like tossing a few you know tens of millions of dollars at this hedge fund and then like go fighting exxon like whatever but like what i think is really cool about <laughs> etfs is that etfs are massive okay so let's back up like what are etfs yeah yeah, yeah. etfs stands for exchange traded funds exchange traded funds are um baskets of assets that are indexed or set up to track a particular um, asset or class of assets. So, so think for example, I mean, the, the one we'll be talking about the most here is an S and P 500 ETF. So an S and P 500 ETF, uh, the S and P 500 is the 500 largest publicly traded companies in America. And if S and P 500 ETF is one asset you buy that tracks the aggregate of all 500 of those companies together, it's benchmarked to it, it tracks it extremely closely. But you can have ETFs for all sorts of things. You could have a whole total market ETF that owns, you know, a little bit of all of thousands of stocks. You could have one that's like uh, industry specific. You might have like a technology ETF or a, a um, industrials ETF, or you might have geographic ETFs like a, an mm-hmm. ETF that uh, owns the top 50 largest stocks in Asia or the mm-hmm. top 25 Malaysian stocks, whatever you want. I mean, there's all sorts of different types of ETFs you can invest in. Um, and what makes them so so accessible is that um, they're traded just like an individual stock. So me, mm-hmm. as an individual, I could never afford to go and buy uh, equal proportions of all of the 500 largest traded companies in, in the U.S. And if I did, it'd be very difficult to manage all of that and like keep track and try and like balance it over time. But with an ETF, I just buy one asset and then that asset is indexed to or is tracking these this group of 500 stocks. Um, 
And this is really similar to how mutual funds historically have worked or pension funds. Mm -hmm. When you think about these investment tools that aggregate everyday people's monies so that they can like save for retirement would be you know the primary use case here. ETFs are just the, the modern variant of that. They're growing explosively in popularity. In 2010, there was 1.3 trillion invested in ETFs. In 2020, mm -hmm. there was 7.75 trillion invested oh, in ETFs. Crap. I mean, this is these are massive now. Exchange traded funds are massive, and and the largest ETF providers, BlackRock and Vanguard, are massive companies. With they are the world's largest asset managers now. Um, and so, what's so exciting about ETFs is that it allows me, as an individual person, to passively invest in these like distributed uh asset classes where i don't have to face the risk of individual companies i basically I'm, I'm i'm indexing my returns to the market as a whole it's a very good responsible passive investment strategy it's how you know financial experts will tell you you ought to save for things like retirement um they're also really cheap they, they have really low expense ratios that the reality is if i'm managing hundreds of billions of dollars and all I'm trying to do is track the S&P 500, it's pretty easy actually. I mean, I can just like mm -hmm. buy, you know, with that much money to play with, I can manage it pretty passively. I just like buy portions of the S&P 500 and, and, you know, track my returns to it. So it's, it's cheap for companies to manage at scale, which means it's cheap for you as an investor to, to purchase ETFs. They're really cool investment vehicles in general, um, but traditionally they're extremely passive, which is good. What does that mean? It means that 90% so here's what happens when you when you I mean this is important concept when you purchase an ETF you don't get to vote on those companies that the ETF owns we yeah. talked earlier about how shareholders vote for the board of a company when you purchase an ETF you're purchasing the ETF the ETF actually owns the shares of those companies and so the ETF is what gets to vote at shareholder meetings and they're big they own sizable chunks of a lot of the largest companies in the U.S. And traditionally, they're very passive in the way they vote mm -hmm. um, and use their clout of aggregating all these people's money. They just vote with management over 90% of the time historically. They just vote with how the company tells them to vote. And uh, what engine number one has decided to do is say, well, what happens if we offer this exact same investment vehicle? But the only difference is we're going to take the power we get by aggregating all this people's money and we're going to say we're going to be very active in shareholder meetings and we're going to constantly push to get people on boards, to care about climate risk, to push for progress. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic because it's like, I think it's like one of the first times as an everyday investor that if you want to be active and having voices in companies, you're, you're only vehicle available to you is not just divestment. I mean, like you can go, you can say like, I want an ETF that doesn't invest in fossil fuels, which is yeah. really cool as well. And I think something that's worth considering, but what hasn't historically been available is the sense of, I want to be a responsible investor who just wants to own a little bit of everything so that I'm just tracking the market. But I also like want to leverage the fact that I should have this, this right as an owner to like make my mm -hmm. voice heard. Um, yeah. But when I own, you know, two stocks, of Exxon, nobody cares. <laughs> but when I own two stocks and like millions of other people own two stocks and we put them all together in the same ETF investment vehicle and then we tell that ETF go out there and be active, it's, it's kind of like, it's like opening the door to activist investing for your everyday person. Um, yeah. You know, like I can just go, like I, I can just go in there. I can buy part of this ETF and now my, you know, I mean, there's like, 
it's representative. It's similar, you know, almost mm-hmm. like what we think of as like democracy or something in that sense. It's like there's a representative who will be expressing my voice. I might not always agree with that representative, engine number one in this case. They might not perfectly align with my values or, or what I want them to do. But largely, much more so than BlackRock or Vanguard, they're going to go out there and they're going to use the clout they get through aggregating all these shares and all this money in order to be agents of, of voice and, and hopefully of change um, across companies. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, like, I could see this as a new path forward for trying to influence companies. To your point, if you own two shares of Exxon, they neither care that you're there nor they, do they care if you're gone. Um, so like, so divestment means that it will, you will no longer be participating if you could, if you could really contend that you are participating because again, like when you buy two shares from a marketplace, you're not like buying them from the company. This is not an IPO. Like the company doesn't get money from you when it's shares trade on the market, except for the way that you influence the value of those shares in some infinitesimally small way when you buy or sell them. Um, but to your point, there is a lot of power in, um, or there's potentially a lot of power in um, pooling voices in a way that can be participatory, not just a way that is, um, you know, just exiting the marketplace. Ultimately, like, you know, if everybody decided to leave Exxon behind, that would be a pretty, not only a strong message to Exxon, but it would probably like be catastrophic for the company overall. Um, but like given, you know, profit motive, given the fact that I want to, as an, as an investor, I want to both benefit my future. You know, I want to both save for retirement and also ensure that a retirement is there for me to take. Um, like, and, and this, this seems like a way that, you know, the average investor might be able to actually do that. Yeah, and, and it's also both and. I mean, like thinking of it not just yeah, like as an individually, sure. but kind of an aggregate, the more options you give to people for different ways to try and mm. enact change, for one person, divestment might be the right approach. Or, the, you know, leaving the word right out of it, might be the approach that they're most attracted sure. to and that they're likely to pick up on. For someone else, for whatever reason, they might not feel comfortable with divestment. They might think it's, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it is selfish in the ultimate analysis, but leaving the normative out of it, I mean, certainly I'm guilty of this a lot of the times. I, I, you know, I've been told I should invest across a broad sector of the economy. I don't want to think about the individual assets that I'm invested in. I just want to own chunks of the economy and be as passive as possible. And I want to... Um, cancel out or abstract away all my risk of individual companies and i don't you know like as soon as i start taking a stance on industries or how well they'll do in the future i'm no longer doing that i'm saying i have i have a position now i'm 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 saying i'm taking a stance i'm anti-fossil fuels or i'm anti this sector of the economy um Mm -hmm. i'm not an expert in investing though it's it's unclear from a financial perspective that that's what i ought to do this is just a new way of um of investing that to some people could be more appealing right or wrong. I think there's a lot to be said for the divestment space as yep. well. I, yep. I mean, I was, I was yep. thinking, um, knowing that we were going to talk about this, I was thinking like, what would happen if like, um, 
my like default retirement plan at work excluded mm. fossil fuels from the companies they invested in and i had to actively sure. go and switch it to investing co- to include fossil fuels i, I yeah. think like that type of default change would have a massive influence on people's Huge. behavior i mean like Absolutely. give me the default option that excludes fossil fuels i'm very unlikely to actively change it to yeah. include fossil fuels yeah which seems to me like the the right angle um for a lot of these like divestment targets, like like targeting companies like ours or or other large companies that employ a lot of people, as a result, pass along along a lot of money to various large funds, and you know you might be able to gain some leverage on your audience there. Um, and to your to your point, yeah, like fundamental, like financially, thinking about the perspective, like for your moral and financial uh, approach to be aligned to divest means that you have to believe that those companies will lose money, will lose value from a financial perspective. Now, I think there's a good argument to be made that long-term that will be true um, should they not change their ways anyway. Um, So those perspectives might be more aligned than, than the average person might think. But, um, but you're right that like, I think more options is more better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, more options is more better. Like from a very pragmatic standpoint, more options is more better. As as individual, sure, I find it a sure, lot more sure. difficult to know whether uh, <laughs> trying to be activist, you know, through through my my asset yeah. allocation versus yeah, um, versus. I mean, so like pragmatically again this isn't necessarily good moral because like pragmatically a lot of these uh etfs that exclude fossil fuels are quite expensive um mm. yeah so uh they they i think like the cheapest it's one i know of it charges like a 0.2 percent expense rate ratio mm. um mm-hmm. whereas this engine number one s&p 500 etf they're launching is only going to charge a 0.5 percent expense ratio yeah it's a lot cheaper it's a lot more appealing um Again, yeah. I mean, like, there is always something, like, there's, there's, I always worry that it is, like, fundamentally a little bit selfish to not, like, put your money where your values are, like, at mm. the expense of future returns. Um, mm. If, if um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that in, like, the, the, the final, um, the final accounting to stay with finance, <laughs> like, which is the, the final accounting of things, like. Is that with I God, think, or? <laughs> <laughs> is that um, at the, that's at the pearly gates right with saint peter yeah the, at the um yeah at the yeah right i mean yeah so morality is probably a myth in the final analysis if there is but <laughs> yeah right so i mean like yeah these are i mean these are thoughts that animate my life and i don't know the answer to like it's 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 um insofar as you're willing to think that like other people's lives matter and that they have, matter just as much as mine and that the future of the world matters and that like morality and ethics like are real and should actually influence our lives and not just be these passive ideals we like appeal to in our in our quiet moments the most convenient times yeah um then i think like there's maybe an argument that like you should sacrifice future returns in order to live your values um Mm. Although there might be a counter argument of, of something like maybe it's not the most efficient way to live your values. Maybe there's other, like, sure. you know, like maybe you're better off to invest in an S&P 500 ETF that earns more returns and then take those returns and invest in causes you care about. 
Uh, mm. It's a slippery slope, though, because, you know, intentions are cheap. It's easy to talk about what you ought to do. It's more difficult to do it. Yeah, I agree. I think I think to, to finish, to close out this segment, I think this is really interesting. I'll be super curious to see what um, engine number one actually does with its its newfound power on the board of Exxon. Um, what kind of traction its ETF gets. And uh, once Betterment has it, I'll just go and, and, and buy it there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. I'm, I'm excited to see. Um, if for no other reason, I'm, I'm excited to see if the, this movement can gain traction. And uh, I, I think it'll be an interesting asset class to follow. segment tonight we are going to be zooming way out to talk about um, the position of the climate crisis in relationship to um, our economy and the potential for that to cascade into an economic crisis um, and a little bit of the flaws and challenges of our current approach our current structure um, in trying to to resolve these issues. Yeah, that's great. It's an interesting space. I, I can't escape the like, perspective that like the real momentum here comes from targeting people. Money. Targeting people with money. Yeah, I think it is. Like I think it is targeting people with money, people who are invested in financial assets, people who engage with insurance companies. Um, if you're going to be reformist about this and if you want to get publicly traded companies to change you got to talk to money, I think. Yeah. But the, the, the good thing is that the financial case is there. And the thing about climate change is that the financial case is certain. Like, if you believe that you will be around in 100 years, you believe that you will be fucked by climate change. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it, to, to, like, unless you get on that boat, you're off that boat. And so, like... Um, yeah, but but which is which is why it's so surprising to me how how little momentum these issues seem to be getting in uh, the private sector, and it's probably because of you know short term profit as opposed to like long term. The profit. quarterly earnings call, you know, cycle of absolutely. What's the street going to tell me three months from now? Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. At the long end, the five year financial plan five year goals you know maybe you have a sure. 10 year plan yeah 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 like, totally anything over that no is one just has making a 50 noise, or right you know i mean yeah. that's the reality of like uh you know a net the zero policy pirate. by 2050 yeah. like it, it's it's meaningless because whatever like time discounting you have means you don't have to do anything now it's like i'm gonna discount my obligations 30 years from now at you know five percent annualized yeah. oh it's zero now like i don't know i mean it's and, and, like, there's an inherent tension there between what the climate scientists are saying about the, like, the time window that we have to address this and the time window that we're planning on addressing it. Mm. Like, it's, like, 10 years to significantly reduce our, our chance of, like, irreversible catastrophe and 30 years until we plan to be in a position to start reversing catastrophe. <laughs> you know, like, just, like, they're totally misaligned. And it's so obvious and... It's, again, not just not salient. Yeah, it's really tough to imagine. I mean, it's depressing, but I think it's really tough to imagine how things don't get worse before they get better. I mean, I think maybe because yep. I'm optimistic, even though I think this like is genuinely the optimistic perspective and not like the pessimistic perspective is that 
things get really bad. They get really bad for a lot of people, but humanity as a species pulls through. Like there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel with a lot of suffering, a much reduced global population, um, and, and, and a much deteriorated environment that, that won't regenerate for thousands of years, but that we as a species make it through. Um, it's so like notable to me in being in like the Pacific Northwest right now and seeing these lumber yards, there's this lumber yard that we drive by on the way into town. And it is, um, you know, at first I thought it was like probably three stories tall and the length of a football field. And honestly, I think it's like probably the length of like one and a half or two football fields. And the entire thing is just, uh, trees that have been cut down that are going to be used for lumber, just, just piled. Um, and, and it's so visceral to me that when you cut down a 300 year old tree or a hundred year old tree at the rate at which we're cutting them down, we, it's net negative. Like, like we're only going in one direction here, which is towards less nature. I mean, like more terraformed society. I mean, we humans are an invasive species. If you think of us as an animal, we are the ultimate invasive species. Um, and, and if we think of ourselves as having evolved to some level of consciousness in which like we can appreciate other species and other forms of life and find beauty and meaning and things outside of just the propagation of the human species, um, I think it's really sad to see the rate at which we're destroying the environment and, and knowing that that the rate at which we're doing it's not sustainable. It's it's net negative, um, and it's it even like it's net negative, and there's no reversing it. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like, this isn't yeah. the type of mistake yeah. that you get a second chance at. When you no. cut down a forest, the forest is is cut down. I mean, like it's gone. Mm. It's not like you can be like, oh shit, man, that was. Yeah. It's not like it's not Plug like it back in. Press the undo button, <laughs> Control Z. That yeah, it doesn't yeah. work yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and the thing is like, like the earth will survive. Cockroaches will still be here. Mm. Like it is just humans that we are fucking. I mean, it's not, it's, it's everything. Like we're totally screwing over everything, but like, but like in our own selfish interest, we should be acting appropriately. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and part of our selfish interest, um, extends beyond ourselves i think i don't know i mean like i really appreciate nature and being in nature and yeah. experiencing other forms of life and and i think that um yeah and i think other forms of life in a lot of ways are like a lot better than i mean humans definitely have something unique and special relative to to, to other uh life on earth but well con would certainly agree um con <laughs> would certainly agree and, and and peter singer might might disagree <laughs> disagree <laughs> <laughs> um and perhaps the truth is somewhere in the middle um, but there's, there is something unique and, and valuable about other life. And, and certainly other life is, um, a lot less destructive. It's, it's less evasive. I think there's something really, I mean, I think like there's something that I find beautiful about really complex systems that have learned to function mm-hmm. really well. I know this cause yeah. I work in like designing systems that are artificially made and that work really, really poorly. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, oftentimes don't work or have a bunch of flaws, and like to see how nature is like so fine tuned. Um, well, to be fair, it, it took billions of years to get that way, mm. um, and and so you but, know yeah. all the more tragedy to wipe it out in the course yeah, yeah, of, you know, absolutely. A couple hundred years. 
years or a few hundred years. It seems so long to us. I mean, these times, like this is the issue. We can't think about scale as humans. We just like fundamentally cannot exactly. think about scale. And so hundreds of years seems the same as thousands or ten thousands or millions of years, but it's not. I mean, certainly from some perspective, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like ultimately this seems like the story of like human capital momentum and short-sightedness like like one part that i find really discouraging about this is i have no idea how you untangle um the house of cards that is our economy that is like the world economy being built on borrowing from the future continued growth and credit i don't know how you untangle that from continued like uh like usage and eventual like depletion of earth resources to your point about trees. Like I think about like, okay, that like those forests are being cut down at probably a record rate. Partially that is because there's a, a really high lumber demand right now. Demand, like lumber prices are through the roof because capacity has been constrained and yet people are trying to build homes at record rates. The reason they're trying to do that is because of belief and hope in the future. They're borrowing money for their mortgages. Like all of this growth is dependent on um, like the future being better than it is today. And so we're in this situation where we're getting to this point where um, the future is almost certain is like, is like <clears throat> that, that, that improved time horizon is probably getting closer and closer to where it like passes over into like a net negative position for like the globe and our economy and humanity overall. Um, and at the same time, we require as much, if not more momentum in like towards that brick wall <laughs> yeah. um, as we get closer to it. There's, there's a lot of context in which we, we think of this pattern, this idea of we need more in the future than today. We need things to be, you know, scale tomorrow relative today in order for them to be sure. remotely successful. We call it a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme in a lot of contexts. And we're really hesitant to apply that critique to capitalism, and I understand. Yeah. I understand why, because sure. um, because it's a weighty term, and, and perhaps it's a slightly sloppy analogy. But I think there is something to this, like fundamental idea. And I say this as somebody who like thinks that there is also something like really, really impressive about market-based economies and their ability to I allocate totally agree, resources yeah. efficiently and to respond yeah. to incentives. Um, and, and to have created a world in which seven and a half billion people can 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 live not fully peacefully but like yeah. largely peacefully, which is like truly yeah. remarkable and coordinate um, and it's yeah. insane. Like it, there's been no other system I can think of that's ever been so successful. But I think it also does have this like real challenge that's pretty foundational to the system that is predicated on growth. You need yeah. growth for capitalism to work. And mm -hmm. growth requires more people. It requires more yep. jobs. It requires more profits. It requires more resource consumption. Um, and that, this is a fundamental challenge because like, and I think like because capitalism is so predicated on growth, often we look at things like climate change and we say the solution is to sustain mm -hmm. growth through renewable supply. Yeah, but exactly. it doesn't work with things like trees. Like it, like it, like it, yeah. it, it doesn't. There are like just some things that are not. You cannot replenish the Amazon as fast as you can tear it down. You cannot replenish yeah. biodiversity as fast as you can destroy it. There might be a future for humans on the other side of it. It's going to be a future with a lot less sure. biodiversity, a lot less less greenery, 
um, probably with a lot of human suffering as, as climate disasters worsen, as, as food chains get yeah. disrupted, you know, as things like this, like there could still be a future for humanity on the other side of it. But I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's really like, there's like this really difficult challenge for capitalism, which is that it's predicated on growth and growth historically has met the consumption of finite resources. Yep. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And it's really frustrating because I don't know that um, for the coordination of like a market system to work, that it would have to be dependent on credit, like a credit market necessarily. Like it wouldn't have to be dependent on, on <clears throat> well, I don't think it would have to be dependent on growth and borrowing from the future necessarily. But it has been like that. Mm-hmm. That is certainly for the last uh, 200, 250 years. Um, and then increasing even more recently with the advent of like new models for borrowing from the future and things like that. Like, um, and, and even the advent of just basic monetary and fiscal policy where you target inflation at a certain positive rate and, and all of these things that inherently require growth to sustain. Um, and, and yeah, and I'm not sure whether that's inextricable or not from the coordinative coordinating power of um, of trade in like a capitalist system but it it seems inextricable now yeah it's 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 yeah i mean it, it is you know you say like it's been true for the last 250 years you know i'd I, I argue that 250 years is like roughly the period of time in which we've seen capitalism yes. as we know it in which we've seen like truly yeah. not just like localized or or small systems of exchange but like truly uh you know market-based economies around mm-hmm. with you know driven by like credit and debt um yeah and ultimately it's the com- it's it's like <clears throat> ultimately it's the it's the entanglement of those interests that leads to peace and coordination it's the fact that mm. when you get to borrow from this person you're dependent on their like uh, you know, their prosperity and like you want to trade to this other person. So you need peace and coordination with them. And so like, like to your point, I can, I can think of no other system as successful at keeping the world, generally speaking at peace, um, uh, generally speaking more fed, you know, generally speaking, you know, in, uh, uh, you know, like dying less, and living longer than, uh, you know, market-based economies globally. Um, but I just have no idea how long that will be able to sustain. Neither do and, I. And, and the financial catastrophe being connected to the climate catastrophe and, you know, something, something like even like the stimulus that we like just went through, our big our only solution to the financial catastrophe was to, um, in to some degree, like uh, delay it and then spread it over many, many <coughs> excuse me, over many many years. You know, like we like borrowed and infused cash, and that will that that will, that will then be that that hit to our GDP will then be spread over you know however many years or whatever, and it'll be fine. Um, it'll be, it's the smoothing effect of monetary and, and fiscal policy. Um, but like, it's all about, it's all about the future focus for a species that has a track record of being incredibly, um, short-sighted. 
yeah i wish i had answers or, or solutions mm-hmm. i mean i think these are like really really big challenges but i think it's the right discussion to have like as somebody who sees the real positive sides of of market-based economies and the way in which mm-hmm. they can coordinate action um and promote in some sense cooperation you know like it's by recognizing the challenges and the weaknesses recognizing to some extent like the externalities of these systems the way in which they're not set up to deal with things that are outside of like the limited purview of a a discrete transaction um Mm -hmm. it's by having these conversations by recognizing them and then thinking about these systems that we have some hope of of finding a, a solution um, yeah. And finding a solution that 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 lasts and and I, I think like when I think of like what the dystopian version of society looks like, you know, a few hundred years from now or something, it's it's more feudalism again. Like the the way capitalism's mm. moving is is that mm. because power is correlated with wealth, when things get bad, the people who have wealth will be okay, and the rest will suffer. Yeah. And when that's yeah. wide enough spread, what you have is not a market-based economy anymore truly i mean what you have is a an elite who live by their own set of rules and have their own set of prosperity and then you have the 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 peasants or the the plebes you know i mean like and and maybe like a a limited class of people in between but um if if we truly believe that that everybody has moral worth equally and that to some extent the prosperity of the best off is only justified in so far as it contributes to a system that has the potential to make everybody better off um Mm. it's the future of capitalism the future of the world given climate change given the limited resources available to us is um is under threat now that i mean that's absolutely not to say that like we should like tear down our current systems and decide to no yeah like become anarchist or socialist like tomorrow or communist or anything else like i mean there, there is um we should be extremely appreciative of how coordinated and peaceful things are and how much opportunity. <laughs> and I like, I know it's really easy to say from a position of privilege and, and that's like yeah. probably a whole nother angle of critique that's like worth exploring. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I can never escape this like sense in which like a system that relatively well coordinates billions of people is not something to just throw away, throw away and try and start from scratch. Um, yeah. It, I, I don't yeah. know a single engineer that could build a system like that or even yeah, I mean, teams of engineers. Like, Probably teams would be worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's like, you know, when you try when you actually like, work with engineers and you try and build things, you see how it goes. Like, yeah, it's one thing, you know, in like my past life in philosophy to like think about things and write think pieces and write mm. papers that imagine the way that the world can be different. Um, and then, you know, I see in like my current life as like a software engineer is like, what's it actually look like given the constraints of real life when we try and build something or build a system? And it's it the disconnect between the two, even when I'm the same person who's both responsible for like the vision mm. and the execution is is massive. Um, yeah. And so I guess like I have this like deep rooted cautionary outlook which like but surely right like i mean like surely like if life is going pretty well for you you're more likely to be cautious like when things go por- poorly that's like when you sure. throw a hell yeah, yeah. Me, right like that's like if life really <laughs> sucks you know if if life sucks for you and your family and your community that's when you say you know like let's tear down the system and do something new and that makes a lot of sense to me i mean like it, yeah. it's it's it, your perspective on these things has to be shaped by how well you feel like things are going for you personally yeah because again we're not good at thinking about scale we're good about thinking about our individual lives 
what life looks like for me and my communities and the way yeah. I interact with the world, I don't have a good sense of what the world looks like at the scale of seven and a half billion people. And so there could be something deeply flawed about me thinking like, oh, the world's pretty well coordinated. We're like moving in mm. a pretty good direction. We're doing things well. I mean, like that's probably, you know, like I'm clearly yeah. speaking from a particular point of view that deserves criticism yeah. and ought to be challenged. Yeah. And fundamentally, probably most that perspective right now is probably most influenced by whether you're hungry or not. Mm. <laughs> well, you, I mean, that's not like a serious point, but it's a point about like, to your, to your point, the limited nature of our, of our scope and perspective, given just a ton of like biases, both, both cognitive and chemical, um, in our, in our, in our perspectives. Um, but yeah, but presumably to your point about like going back to your point about like externalities and like the, the role of government should at least be in a mixed economy to, require that you know private actors account for their externalities like that seems like a very basic role that government should do they should take they should they should endeavor to take the long view when the private sector can't be relied upon to do that which makes sense given the profit motive that they would they would prioritize near-term profits uh versus long-term value um so like like crafting policies that require um you know, the private sector to internalize uh, externalities seems like a basic thing that that um, that the public sector should be tasked with. But because of our, you know, polit political situation and I think like the short-sightedness of our representatives and the electorate, you know, you're you're constantly fighting today's battles instead of like legislating for tomorrow's problems. So like not to not to not add yet another uh you know scoop of fuel to the the fire that is this problem um but like it seems like all of our systems are set up insufficiently to to truly take to truly tackle these long-term um problems uh but who knows like maybe we will like we've we've pulled out you know really interesting hail marys before maybe we'll be able to to uh do it again with this one or maybe we'll be dead by the time things get really bad and then we'll be just <laughs> like everyone else who's ever lived yeah <laughs> and with that thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum you'll hear from us again next week <laughs>